0: Welcome to the New Books
1: Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network's Animal Studies channel. My name is Kyle Johanson, and I recently became a host on this channel. Today, I'm very happy to be interviewing Dr. Josh Milburn. Josh is a lecturer in political philosophy and British Academy postdoctoral fellow at Loughborough University, as well as the host of the Animal Studies podcast, Knowing Animals. He and I have also known each other for a while now. Uh, we met at least six years ago, I think. We'll be, dis- we'll be discussing his book, Just Fodder, The Ethics of Feeding Animals, which was published earlier this year by McGill-Queens University Press. Welcome to the podcast, Josh.
2: Hi, Kyle. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Yeah, it's great to have you. Uh, could you please tell us a bit about yourself, such as where you're from, what topics you to work on, or, or anything else you think the listeners might want to know about you?
2: Yeah, I'm a philosopher. I'm based in the UK, and I grew up in the UK. I spent a little bit of time in Canada, which, as I recall, is where you and I met, I'm a philosopher who works on questions about animals, and I'm interested in questions about where animals fit in our moral, legal, and political systems. So in many ways, I'm an extensionist theorist. I'm interested in extending existing moral, normative, legal frameworks to include animals in various ways. The topics that I work on include animals and food, animals and warfare, wild animals, I've written on animals and hate speech. So a whole different array of topics when we think about moral, legal, political philosophy, some of which we've talked about animals in for a long time, some of which are quite new to questions about animals. I've written a couple of books. One of them is Just Fodder the Ethics of Feeding Animals that we're talking about today. Another, another is called Food, Justice and Animals, Feeding the World Respectfully. And that's forthcoming with Oxford University Press, hopefully in 2023. At the moment, I've recently started a new lectureship at Loughborough University in the UK, where I'm based in the Division of International Relations, Politics and History.
1: Oh, yeah. Great. Thanks, Josh. Um, I mean, I really enjoyed your book, and I'm I'm looking forward to seeing um, your next book when it comes out. And uh, that's a very close period. I mean, I guess it could potentially be the case that your next book comes out near the end of 2023, but I'm, I'm guessing not, right? Probably more like early, early 2023 is what you're thinking?
2: Yeah, hopefully early 2023. So this comes from just the precarity of early career academic life. In that I started just fodder at the postdoc I did in Canada back in 2016 to 2017. But then, after I came back to the UK, I had a teaching intensive position for a few years, and that meant that I really couldn't spend much time writing it. I then landed another postdoc position at the University of Sheffield here in the UK, where I was working on another project called Food Justice and Animals, but I finished the two books kind of in tandem. So in many ways, although I've been working on Just Fodder for a lot longer, the two books were finished quite close to each other, and that's the reason the publication dates are quite close.
1: Okay, right. Well, okay. So uh, why did did you decide to write the the book that we're we're currently discussing, um, Just Fodder?
2: Yeah, there's a couple of different ways to think about this. This isn't a book only about pet food. It's a book that contains some conversations about pet food, but it was questions about pet food that first landed me on the trajectory that led to Just Fodder. So on the one hand, as a new vegan, back when I was an undergraduate and postgraduate student, I was a member of Vegan Facebook pages, social media groups of various kinds. And again and again, I saw these arguments spring up about vegan food for companion animals, for dogs and cats. And it struck me as the kind of debate where reasons were being given back and forth and battle lines were quickly drawn. You know, vegans are supposedly a peaceful people, but this was an area where, you know, the clause really came out people would say either you're not a proper vegan if you feed meat to your companion animal or they'd say it was cruel to feed plant-based foods to companion animals so it struck me that there were there was room for philosophical analysis here but the academic story about the inspiration was back when I was a new phd student i attended a conference i think it was only the second ever academic conference i'd been to and One of the presenters there was a Canadian philosopher called Catherine Wayne. And at the time of the presentation, at the time of this conference, Sue Donaldson and Will Kimlicker's book, Zoopolis, had just been released. Now, this has been a very influential book for me, and I know it has for you too, Kyle. And this is a book that really brings animals into political philosophy in a big way. It's not the first book to do that, but it's certainly one that really brought animals into the political philosophy mainstream. Now, Catherine Wayne was speaking about Zoopolis, and she was speaking about a couple of paragraphs in Zoopolis about the problem of feeding cats. And the problem is quite straightforward. In an animal rights-respecting state, there would be no slaughterhouses, there would be no animals killed for food. But if cats require meat to survive as Donaldson and Kimlicker suggest they might, that raises a really difficult question about whether there are cats in the zoopolis in this animal rights respecting state. And Catherine Wayne was trying to piece together that question, trying to work out a solution to that question. Now, as far as I understand, that paper wasn't ever published, but it did inspire me. And I, I wrote a couple of papers about pet food. One thing led to another. And then I started my postdoc in Canada working with Will Kimlicker at Queen's University on this project about the feeding of animals. And by that time, I'd realized that questions about feeding animals stretched far beyond questions about pet food and actually included a whole range of different animals that we do or could feed.
1: Okay, thanks. Um, I don't know if you knew this. Um, So, uh, uh, I mean, you you know that I, I did my PhD at Queen's. Um, but, um, C- Catherine Wayne and I, uh, shared an office, um, for a while and, uh, I have a very distinct memory of, um, drawing her attention to the 2013 MANCEPT conference and particularly the, um, the, uh, political turn panel that you both presented at. Um, and, uh, and I argued that she ought to, she ought to submit, uh, an abstract because it was just so obvious that this, this panel was related to her research. And, um, and she, and I, I guess she, she went it she went and did that. Actually, we were, we were both at the, the 2013, um, Mansep conference, though uh, I wasn't at the same workshop that the two of you were at. I was at a different workshop. Um, It's possible that you and I met there, but I I don't have a very clear memory of who I spoke to and who I didn't speak to because it was a long time ago and... um, Yeah, Uh, it's just, it's just, anyways. That's um, very interesting. (laughs)
2: So perhaps I should be crediting you as one of the great inspirations of Just Fodder. I did not know that part of the story.
1: Yeah, I know conditions are a funny thing. Like I, insofar as I may have played, you know, any role in the creation of your book, it was just this sort of weird necessary condition, maybe. Um, uh, But, uh, because I mean, yeah, I guess if Catherine, if Catherine Wayne had not gone to that conference, maybe you wouldn't have um, continued on this trajectory or started that the trajectory that you're on. Um, it's just interesting to think about, I don't know, um, small, maybe a small world is the relevant thought here. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. Okay. So, uh, p- perhaps the most important concepts to your book are feeding and relationships. Uh, can you explain the significance of these concepts in your work?
2: Yeah. So the issue of feeding, I think is very interesting because, We have an awful lot of literature in moral philosophy and increasingly in political philosophy about the ethics of human diet, about the ethics of what we eat. But we don't have so much about the ethics of feeding, that is the ethics of what foods we give to others. Now, there's a whole host of different issues that feeding might raise that our own diets do not. And when it comes to non-human animals, I think the the issues that are raised by feeding are many. A really straightforward example, and I think this goes right back to those kind of Facebook debates I was talking about that you see between vegans when it comes to the ethics of feeding meat to dogs and cats. Dogs and cats have very different biologies to humans. So while we can certainly enter into arguments about how human biology impacts upon ethics of the ethics of eating. You know, you can think of people like Catherine Paxton George, who have done a lot of work in that area. The way that cat, dog, tiger, etc. biologies impact upon the ethics of feeding are quite different. Okay, so that's just one example of the ways thinking about feeding, specifically the feeding of animals, is quite different from the way we think about the ethics of Feeding ourselves, or the ethics of eating as it's normally understood. So it strikes me that, or it struck me that there was a real gap in the literature here, in that these kinds of questions, although they were deeply practical questions, were not really being explored by animal ethicists or food ethicists, or more broadly by the philosophers of food. Now, when it comes to relationships, This is absolutely key to the kind of ethical system that I'm drawing upon, or more precisely, developing through my exploration in just fodder. Simply put, I am an animal rights theorist. I believe that animals have rights, and I believe that those rights are a matter of justice. That is, it's not just nice or good or virtuous for us to respect animal rights. We have to respect animal rights. And ideally, the state or a state-like institution would be protecting and affirming those animal rights. Now, we don't live in that world, sadly. Perhaps we can do our part to move towards it. Nonetheless, the kinds of rights that I affirm more strongly, and in just fodder, the kind of rights that are the only ones I really talk about, are what are called negative rights. They're rights against the infliction of certain kinds of treatment. That might sound a little abstract, but very simply, they're rights not to be killed, rights not to be tortured, rights not to be maimed, rights not to be hurt. They are rights against certain kinds of mistreatment. On the other hand, when it comes to positive rights, or the positive duties that we have towards animals, for example, duties to help them, crucially, duties to feed them. I think the question of relationships becomes crucial. And the reason I say that is because I think that some animals are very close to us in very normatively salient ways. We're entangled with them we are responsible for the plights that they face, we are responsible for their ability to get food or to not get food, and so on and so forth. And that, I think, suggests that we have very strong duties to help them or to prevent them from doing harm or similar. Our ethical entanglement with them means that we have positive duties towards or concerning them. When we have other animals who are much less entangled with us, much further away from us, although they might be very similar in terms of their possession of sentience or their possession of levels of intelligence or emotional sophistication, the kinds of things that ground negative rights, the kinds of things that ground the interests that underlie negative rights, The very different relationships that we have with them, the very different entanglements that we have with them, I think, suggest that we have very different positive duties. This all might sound a little abstract, but let me give a very straightforward example. If my dog is starving, I'm probably responsible for that in some way. I've controlled her access to food. I've controlled the way she's been brought up, the kind of behaviours that she has, the way she behaves, where she physically is what kinds of spaces and objects she has access to. So I seem to be deeply responsible for her and I seem to have strong positive duties to help her when she's starving. In comparison, a wild animal, a wild wolf, say, who is very, very similar to my dog in terms of her emotional sophistication, her sentience, her levels of personhood and so forth, although she might have the same negative rights as my dog, I think it makes sense to say that I don't have particularly strong obligations to help her. Now I'm not necessarily endorsing that view. All I'm saying is right now that it it's an there's an intuitive sense that this difference, this distance, this different levels of entanglement make a big moral difference when it comes to the positive duties that we have towards these other animals. Hmm.
1: Okay, right. Um yeah, so yeah, the 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 book you're that you've written is um uh it's it's similar in, in pretty important ways to um, Claire Palmer's uh, Animal Ethics in Context and also Donald, Donaldson and Kimlicka's um, Zoopolis in that in that you're using this relational framework. Um, but your but your relational framework, yeah, it's pretty different from. I mean, in some respects, different from theirs. Uh, I guess one difference is, and well, we'll get into it, but you 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 um, draw quite a large number of relational categories. Like you have a sort of richer array of categories than. Than we see in um, either of those books, um, but but I, I take it also that um, the concept of feeding played a pretty big role in determining w- how you would distinguish between different relational categories, um, wh- whether we feed animals intentionally or whether they're being fed unintentionally or whether we're not feeding them at all. Like the, these 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 sorts of differences were important for you when deciding how to break up the different relational cate- relational categories of animal. Is that is that right?
2: I think that's absolutely right, and in many ways. Feeding provides a lens. Okay, Feeding is a way into thinking about these different relationships. And sometimes these are relationships that animal ethicists have written a lot about, for example, companion animals. Sometimes they're relationships that animal ethicists have thought about a little and create a real headache for them. For example, those animals who live on arable farms and who are impacted by our plant-based agriculture, such as wild mice and wild birds who live among grains and vegetables that we grow for ourselves. And sometimes they're categories of animals that maybe animalists haven't thought so much about, such as garden birds who we feed. So feeding provides a way into thinking about these relationships identifying new ways to address old problems but also identifying new interesting entanglements and new interesting problems that haven't really been explored before now you say that i'm identifying a wider array of relationships and donaldson and Kimlicka and palmer and i think that's absolutely right and i think part of the reason that i do that is because I think the moral landscape is actually very, very complicated. I don't think we can neatly distinguish the relationships that we have with animals into a few small camps. And in fact, even the way I split it up in the book, I think oversimplifies to a certain extent. In some ways, these are illustrative rather than any attempt at being comprehensive. But I think another reason that I've got a wider array of relationships in sight is that I'm moving between both moral philosophy and political philosophy, whereas Palmer is more firmly in moral philosophy, Donaldson and Kimlicker are more firmly in political philosophy. And I think the reason that's significant is that some of the relationships we have with animals seem to be collective political relationships, and some of the relationships we have with animals seem to be much more individual. So I think that we need to think about both of those categories, that is political and moral, when we are trying to think about the ethics of feeding animals, or indeed, the ethics of helping animals more broadly, or the ethics of our relationships with animals.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Um, well, I, I, I'd i like to shift gears soon. But but, but before I, I do that, um, it just occurred to me right now that um, I'm, I'm recalling an early criticism that um, Alistair Cochrane made of um, Zoopolis. And the criticism more or less was that, sure, relational categories matter. But um, they're not sufficiently contextualist. Like relational r- r- relational um, approaches in animal ethics are tr- are trying to be contextualist by distinguishing different relational contexts and the duties that are specific to them. But in any particular relational category, we'll find lots of differences between the different beings that we're slotting into that category, such that it seems like the whatever we might learn about that category is not going to be completely applicable to each individual. And so um, Cochrane argues that like these relational approaches are just really not contextualist enough. And it just seemed to me that one way of being a relational uh, theorist and addressing that worry that relational theory tends not to be sufficiently contextualist is by increasing the number of relational categories so that they're more fine-grained. And that's that's what you've done in, in your book, I think. Um,
2: yeah. That's right. That's certainly what I'm trying to do. And I think that if we're being serious about being relationalists, and I think we should be, although I am a rights theorist, first and foremost, I think relational categories are hugely important and they're what I focus on in a big way in this book. If we're serious about being relationists, then we we have to recognise that the world is very, very complicated and our relationships with animals are very, very complicated. And I think that sometimes people encounter how complicated our ethical relationships with animals are and they, in effect, give up. And they think, well, there's no way we can work our way through these complicated relationships and come to a satisfactory answer. And that seems to be, maybe that's unfair, but that seems to be what some people in the so-called post-humanist literature do. They identify how incredibly complicated our entanglements with animals are. This word entanglement, of course, is quite strongly associated with post-humanism, though I'm not coming from a post-humanist perspective. They recognise how complicated our entanglements with animals are and how difficult it is to come to straightforward, clear lines and clear rules. And they say, well, in that case, we need to stop trying to come up with so-called totalizing rules. Now, I reject that. I accept that these matters are very complicated, but I think that we should make every effort we can to work through this complication, not to just embrace this complication and celebrate it as, you know, celebrate the fact that we can't reach clear answers, but instead say, Look, the answers might take a while to get to, and the answers might only work in small con- certain small contexts, or there might be counterexamples, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't seek out those answers and do what we can to behave right and to react and interact with animals in the right way, in a respectful way, and in a way that is morally proper.
1: Yeah, Okay. Well, so shifting gears now, um, so in the the second chapter of your book, you discuss something called the problem of carnivory, and uh, different versions of this problem kind of pop up in, in various places throughout your book. I was hoping you could explain what the problem of carnivory is.
2: Yes, I think this is something I've already pointed towards a little bit in our conversation, but I can summarize this in just a couple of sentences. When it comes to human meat eating, the problem that is, the reason that people eat meat, is in many, many cases an issue of ideology. People eat meat because they think animals are lower than humans, or they think that meat is a nice, normal, necessary part of the human diet, or similar. Okay, They eat meat because of their beliefs and the belief structure that they've been socialised into. When it comes to non-human animals, however, often they eat meat because of their biology. Okay? I'm thinking specifically of carnivorous animals here. They don't necessarily have ideologies about moral status, they don't necessarily have ideologies about meat, but they do have particular biologies that lend themselves to favoring a meat diet. Okay? Now, philosophers are well placed to challenge ideology, they're well placed to diagnose ideologies and identify problems with those ideologies and that I think puts them in a good place to criticise human meat eating. But when it comes to non-human animals, philosophers are not in a good position to challenge biologies. They can perhaps challenge conceptualizations of biologies or they can assist in the conceptualization of biologies, but philosophers aren't well placed to correct biologies in the way that they can correct ideologies. So, the problem of carnivory is effectively that when it comes to non human animal meat eating, there are different factors at stake, different factors at stake than when it comes to human meat eating. And if meat eating is a problem, which, of course, I think it is, because it involves harm to animals, harm to morally considerable animals, harms to right be- rights-bearing animals. Then this problem is a real one.
1: Okay. Okay. Right. And so, uh, I mean, you, you you have various things to say about how to address the the problem of carnivory, um, but one one of the main things you say is that is that cellular, cellular agriculture is uh, is is an important part of the solution to the problem. Um, and, and interestingly, you, you also argue that um, the problem of carnivory itself provides a fresh argument in support of cellular agriculture. It helps to address um, problems that other people have raised about cellular agriculture. Um, so I was, I was hoping you could explain this to us, about, explain to us the relationship between cellular agriculture and the problem of carnivory, and, and maybe first also just explain what cellular agriculture is.
2: Yes, thanks. So I think it's worth stressing, first of all, that cellular agriculture, although it's something I'm very, very excited about, this isn't my kind of one-size-fits-all solution. I think there are a range of possible solutions we should explore. Nonetheless, I think cellular agriculture is one of the big ones. So cellular agriculture is something, although the term might be unfamiliar, I think lots of listeners will already know about some elements of cellular agriculture, The idea is that when we're growing animal products for food or for clothing or for any reason, rather than growing these products at the organism level, we grow them at the cellular level. So for example, if we want meat or milk or leather, rather than growing a whole cow which is quite wasteful and, of course, raises ethical questions about the treatment of the cow. We can instead grow meat and fat cells, muscle and fat cells for the meat. We can grow milk proteins for the dairy products. We can grow skin cells and similar to produce leather. So the most famous application of cellular agriculture is cultured or cultivated or in vitro meat. It's known by a variety of different names. This is meat that's grown outside of an animal's body. It's commercially available at time of recording in Singapore, and it's available, though not commercially available, in a few other places such as in Israel. So this is something that's here, but not here in a massive way. But quite excitingly, there are a number of companies that are racing to produce cultivated meat or utilising other cellular agricultural technologies to produce food for animals. So I'd like to hope that in a few years' time, these things will be commercially available and provide ethically less dubious sources of meat and other animal products in order to feed these carnivorous or omnivorous animals who we currently feed the products of slaughter-based meat. Now, as for the argument that the problem of of carnivory provides for cellular agriculture. I'm broadly an advocate of cellular agriculture, although I recognise that there are some questions to be answered. We could go into that in detail, but I'll I'll pass over that for now. However, there are lots of people in animal ethics, animal rights, veganism, and so forth, who are actually very sceptical about the prospect of in vitro meat and other products of cellular agriculture. But I think that many of these people could be convinced and in fact have been convinced of the value of cellular agriculture for feeding carnivorous animals. And this is precisely because there are very different matters at stake when it comes to feeding carnivorous animals than when it comes to feeding ourselves. That is the problem of carnivory. Okay, So even if, for example, meat is not food for us, as some critics of in vitro meat have argued, they say this just reaffirms the idea that meat is food when we should be challenging that. I think that many of these people might accept, and indeed do accept, that meat is food for carnivorous animals. So given that meat is food for carnivorous animals, better to produce that meat in a way that is either not harmful to animals, that's a kind of ideal version of cellular agriculture, or even a non-ideal version of cellular agriculture, significantly less harmful to animals. So even if, even if the perfect society of the future would be a vegan society—that is, a human vegan society—we can argue about that. Um, even if the perfect future society would have only human vegans, it might still have meat-eating animals, and so the existence of these meat-eating animals might be a good reason to produce cultivated meat and other products of cellular agriculture anywhere.
1: Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Um, yeah, I, I think I mean your your, your books—it's not about veganism, but it, se- it seems clear to me that it's a it should be of immediate interests to vegans, like the 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 issues you discuss in the book, including um, uh, the idea that cellular agriculture, um, even if humans shouldn't be consuming its products, it, it it makes a lot of sense for some animals to be consuming p- products produced this way. Um, th- these are things that vegans really need to think about because some vegans haven't thought about them, and um, but but they're but they they're issues that follow pretty directly from the moral commitments that mo- that most vegans have.
2: Um, Yes, I think so. Thanks for saying that. And I think it's, as you say, it's not a book about veganism, but it's inevitable as a book that's at the intersection of animal ethics and animal rights on the one hand and food ethics and the philosophy of food on the other. It's inevitable that veganism is going to be present. Mm -hmm.
1: Okay. So in in chapter four of your book, uh, you distinguish different categories of what you call animal neighbor. And, and one important distinction you draw is the difference between uh, what you call animal friends and animal foes. Um, although I don't, I don't think you really think of them as as foes exactly. But but I'll let you speak to that. Um, can Can you explain this distinction between? Well, I suppose explain what an animal neighbor is. What you have in mind there, but also the distinction between animal friends and animal foes, and and why you think that distinction is important.
2: Yes, I think you're right as well, that they're not really fools. It's just, it's just a name. But animal neighbours are those animals who live around us. So they're not part of our society, but they do live in the kinds of spaces where we live. So a paradigm example would be a garden bird. Now, we mentioned earlier Claire Palmer and Donaldson and Kimlicker, and I think this category of animal neighbour overlaps fairly substantially with Claire Palmer's category of contact zone animals and Sue Donaldson and Wilke Emlicka's category of liminal animals, though we're perhaps stressing slightly different features of these animals. Nonetheless, I think that we can meaningfully identify a range of different subcategories of animal neighbour, okay, and these might be ethically quite interesting. And the distinction between the animal friend and the animal foe is a relationship, as you mentioned earlier, that's very much tied to food and feeding practices. So this is exactly the kind of of example of a case where the lens of feeding offers a new way to carve up the world, a new way to think about existing problems. So very simply, the animal friends are those animals who we invite into our spaces, who we try to feed in our spaces. So I have lots of bird feeders out in my back garden, inviting sparrows, tits, finches, various kinds of wild birds who live in suburban England to come and visit me, to come and eat the food. Animal foes, on the other hand, are the animals who we actively try not to feed, okay? Animals are often invited, sorry, not invited. Animals are often drawn to our spaces because they want to eat things that we have for ourselves or we have for other animals or similar and we take active steps to try and stop them from feeding so an example i use in just fodder is the example of rabbits or badgers who enter human spaces or human gardens or human allotments trying to eat vegetables that we're growing for ourselves another example and this is an example that's quite close to my heart is compost bins we invent increasingly sophisticated compost bins in order to try and keep rodents out. Because rodents, rats, mice, etc., would be attracted, in fact, are attracted to the rotting plants, rotting vegetables, rotting food that we place in compost bins. So these are animals that we take steps to try and discourage. We put up barriers or we use traps. Now, of course, I don't endorse those kinds of deadly traps, but we take various steps to try and discourage them. So they are our animal foes. Then, of course, we should also add there's a number of animal neighbours who we we just kind of ignore. We get on with our lives, they get on with their lives. But I think the friend foe distinction is a very interesting one.
1: Okay, right, and I, I guess uh, the next question will be m- maybe an opportunity for you to uh, elaborate on the importance of the distinction. And it, the so I mean, you, you talk about hospitality in this chapter of your book, and you you think it's a useful concept for understanding our duties to to animal friends. Um, do you mind explaining that?
2: Yes. So the idea of hospitality is something I borrow from the literature on food ethics and more broadly on the philosophy of food. And I think it's a really great example of the way that animal ethics and the philosophy of food can speak to each other, because hospitality is such a food-focused virtue, a food-focused duty. The idea of hospitality, roughly, is that we extend a welcome to individuals with whom we want to eat, with whom we want to share our table, you know, literally or metaphorically. And what's interesting about hospitality is on most most framings of hospitality, we are under no obligation to extend hospitality to all and sundry. In fact, extending hospitality to everybody would be self-defeating, right? Because to use a slightly stylized example, if I'm extending hospitality to you one of the duties that I have is to make you feel comfortable. And I might make you feel very uncomfortable if I also extend hospitality to your worst enemy. Okay, So it is impossible for me to extend hospitality to both you and your worst enemy at the same time. Now, I think there's actually a direct analogue here when it comes to feeding garden birds, insofar as I feed sparrows and pigeons in my garden, and occasionally I have peregrine falcons, I have Sparrowhawks, birds who would eat sparrows and eat pigeons flying over my garden. Occasionally, they come into the garden. Now, if I was to extend hospitality to both of these animals at once, I'd be putting the sparrows in literal mortal danger. And that seems to be a failure to extend hospitality properly. It seems to be inconsistent with the values of hospitality, which is about offering a safe space, a relatively safe space, but a safe space nonetheless. So I think that this idea of hospitality works quite neatly because these are categories of animals, the animal friends at least, are animals who we are already feeding. So the lens of hospitality seems deeply suitable. It also provides an interesting way of framing this relationship as friendlike. You know, the garden birds who I feed, they're not friends in the rich Aristotelian sense of friendship maybe some animals are friends in that sense maybe they aren't that's not my point but they are we i am in a friend like relationship with them and the language of hospitality provides an interesting way of thinking about that but as i say it also provides an interesting way of explaining why i might be not obliged to extend hospitality to some animals i don't have to extend hospitality to everyone i am permitted to put the lid on my compost bin to stop rats and mice from entering it and feeding on the scraps that I've put in there. And it also explains the kinds of duties, they're not hugely strong duties, but they are duties nonetheless, that I might have to those animals to whom I do extend hospitality. A really simple example, I do think I have a moral obligation if I am feeding these wild birds, not that I have any obligation to feed them at all, but if I am feeding them, I have an obligation to ensure that I'm providing them with food that won't make them ill. I have an obligation to ensure that I'm regularly cleaning my bird feeders. I have an obligation to ensure that I'm not going out of my way to attract other birds who would literally kill them. These are the kinds of duties that a notion of virtue, a duty of hospitality might ground when it comes to garden birds. And I think it provides a really useful starting point for thinking about the normative significance the relationship I have with garden birds, which, as I mentioned earlier, is just not something that animal ethicists have spent much time thinking about. Okay, right.
1: Um, Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. I I mean, I I guess um, a short way maybe of putting it is that we owe certain positive duties to animal friends um, by virtue of the fact that we've extended hospitality to them and that we don't owe those positive duties or don't seem to owe the same positive duties to animal foes, because we haven't extended hospitality to so-called foes.
2: That's precisely right. Yes. And I think that we also need to be careful about not going too far, right? Extending hospitality to birds or other animals, even if they accept hospitality, doesn't justify us capturing them and bringing them into our lives. Maybe, Maybe sometimes it is appropriate for us to foster a kind of strong dependency relationship with wild animals. Very occasionally, you know, if they're Injured, for example, and they need our assistance potentially. But I think that this language of hospitality also provides a neat way of explaining why it's appropriate for us to sometimes keep our distance. Mm-hmm.
0: Slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
1: Okay, sure. Yeah. Um, If we, yeah, so I I suppose if if, if, um, an animal who you've extended hospitality to becomes sufficiently dependent on you, um, it's no longer the case that you've merely extended hospitality to them. They've become something more like um, a a child or a, uh, a ward or something of yours, which is a different relationship.
2: Exactly. They seem to move from the category of animal neighbour and animal friend to the category of animal neighbour. Sorry, I'll say that again. They seem to move from the category of animal neighbour and animal friend to the category of animal family. They seem much more like, as you say, a child or a ward, or especially a companion animal.
1: Mm -hmm. Right, right. Okay, so uh, another category of animal discussed in your book is um, what you call animal thieves and uh, these are animals who live in rural areas and uh, who eat uh, farmers' crops and, and whatnot. Um, th- these animals are of interest to you and uh, and I, I guess to our listeners in part because the role because of the role that they play in arguments for so-called burger veganism. Uh, can, can you explain what burger veganism is?
2: Yes. Burger veganism is a phrase that I borrow from Andy Lamy. It's an idea that has quite a lot of currency. It's known by a few different names. Another name which I now favour a little bit more is new omnivorism, though we might want to distinguish burger veganism and new omnivorism. But the, the broad argument is the same. Basically, there are some people who, whether sincerely or not, is a different matter. But there are some people who argue that a meat-based diet or certain meat-based diets might actually be more animal-friendly than vegan diets. Why? Well, they say when we crunch the numbers, we see that raising a few cows on... Pasture or grass fed cows, and then slaughtering those cows and eating the beef actually kills fewer animals overall than does running a combine harvester through a field of wheat or a field of soy or, you know, using large machinery to harvest vegetables where there are animals living. Because, of course, this large machinery disrupts animal lives and kills animals. So, in terms of a sheer numbers game, we should favour. Beef eating—that is specifically pasture-raised beef, certainly not intensively raised beef—but in sheer numbers game, we should favour the pasture-raised beef, pasture-raised beef over a conventional vegan diet. So Stephen Davis, Michael Archer—these are some of the people who've made this kind of argument. But it might be familiar to quite a lot of people as a kind of querulous challenge to veganism, uh, which is often not very sincere. Now. I think this is a really interesting challenge, and I think there's a whole host of ways that we can respond to it. Crucially, for example, I think the numbers just don't add up. So Andy Lamy, Bob Fisher, people like that have done a lot of good work to identify where the arguments of Davis and Archer just don't add up and actually suggest that a vegan diet is less harmful. Nonetheless, I think regardless of how the numbers play out, and the simple fact is we don't know in some cases. There's not been a lot of empirical studies on these these issues. But whether the numbers play out or not, what's undeniable is that intensive arable, that is plant-based agriculture, is harmful to animals. It is harmful to wild animals. It is harmful to these particular animal neighbours who I call animal thieves. Thieves, again, is in quote marks. And so what we need to do, I think, the most convincing response we can offer to the burger vegan, to the new omnivore, is to come up with new ways to produce plant-based foods that are less harmful to these wild animals. And one that I'm particularly excited about is the prospect of vertical agriculture. Now, vertical agriculture might be familiar to some listeners, it might not be. But the idea is something like this. Let's say I have an acre of land where I'm growing vegetables, but I'm just not growing enough vegetables for it to be profitable or for me to feed my family or what have you. And I want to expand my acre of crops. Well, I could buy another acre next door, and that will give me two acres of land to grow crops, and then buy another, and then I've got three acres, and expand outwards. Or I could come up with some way to take my acre and turn it into two, three, four, five, etc. acres by going up. We can expand outwards. We can expand upwards. And vertical agriculture is... It refers to a wide range of things, some of which people can practice at home, you know, clever systems of shelving and potting so that you can grow plants up a wall, for example. But it can also refer to some very impressive, at the moment, hypothetical possibilities of growing food within literal skyscrapers. And this is a way to really, really multiply the amount of vegetables that we can grow, the amount of crops that we can grow per acre of land. And the value of this, of course, is less land means fewer animals impacted. It means more land that can be given over to other kinds of things. So I'm very excited about the prospect of vertical agriculture as a way to move away from forms of plant-based agriculture that are harmful to wild animals, harmful specifically to these animal thieves, this particular category of animal neighbors. And the possibility of using vertical agriculture and similar technologies and similar practices to really take the sting out of the new omnivore, the burger vegan challenge, and to say, actually, maybe we can produce plant-based foods with next to no harm to wild animals. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, right. Yeah, I, I guess this is one of the ways in which your your book is very much... Um engaging with political philosophy because um obviously individual consumers can't make well i mean i guess we could start doing a little bit of vegetable growing in our own homes or things like that but the individual consumer can't uh create it's very difficult for the individual consumer to um make vertical agriculture um a a big institutional part of our society um it's some, the shift away from conventional agriculture and towards vertical agriculture is something that happens to, needs to happen collectively at the institutional level.
2: I think that's right. So as individuals, I think that we can put vertical agriculture and other forms of animal-friendly plant agriculture on the agenda, as it were. So right now, even animal activist organisations aren't really talking about this problem, and I think it is a real problem. They aren't talking about this problem at any kind of great depth and they aren't proposing solutions. So I suggested one set of solutions, which I think is very promising. And I accept that, yeah, this isn't something that we can click our fingers and switch over to. This is an area of the book where I am dealing much more at the level of ideal theory. There are some areas of the book, the things I'm talking about, people could read it and literally make changes in their life there and then, about their relationship with garden birds, for example, about relationships with companion animals. But of course, most of us don't have any personal relationships with wild animals who are living on crop farms, living in wheat farms, living on vegetable farms of various kinds. But we do have a kind of institutional relationship with them, insofar as we feed into or feed from a food system, which impacts them negatively in a very real way.
1: Yeah, right. And I guess uh, when, if in the event that vertical agriculture becomes more um, common and may, maybe involved, maybe is included in labeling, uh, we, we, we can maybe see a label on in decades from now. Let's say where the label says, uh, you know, these tomatoes were grown. Via vertical agriculture, um, this suggests to me that that vegans would have a good reason to to buy um, vegetable products that that were made via vertical agriculture rather than than via other means.
2: I think that's right, and certainly vegans today, or anyone concerned about the impact on these animals today, could be making choices that are better or worse for these animals. But like I say there's no label like you say there's no labelling and like I say we don't really have much research on the different levels of impact on these field animals from different forms of arable agriculture and I think that's a real shame so it's not easy to make these decisions today it would involve a great deal of guesswork and so I certainly don't blame anyone who decides that they're not going to engage with that kind of problem and just sticks to a fairly conventional plant-based diet. Personally, I try to limit my impact slightly by growing some of my own vegetables, but we know that we can't be that productive in growing our own vegetables and we know that of course that comes with its own challenges. And I'm very reluctant to say, I should say that some people in the this new omnivore literature have raised the prospect that we should be growing our own vegetables where possible but i'm very reluctant to say that everyone has a moral duty to follow the hobby that i happen to have um so i don't i don't go quite that far though i do think that the argument could be made that that's one way we can limit the impact of our industrial food system on these wild animals Mm -hmm. even as vegans
1: Mm -hmm. right okay Okay, well, shifting gears a bit. um, So in in my opinion, one of the most interesting conclusions that you argue for in your book is that wildlife rehabilitation centers shouldn't release rehabilitated predators. Uh, I was hoping you could explain how you how you reach this conclusion.
2: Yeah, thanks for picking up on that. I think you're right that this is one of the more interesting claims of the book. It's certainly one of the more controversial claims of the book. And it's something that initial commentators have picked up on to a certain extent in reading groups in um, pieces written about the book so far. Now, the argument goes something like this. If we take a wild animal into our community, say into a wildlife rehabilitation centre, a wild animal who is facing severe difficulties, we can bring them back to health. We can bring them back to a position where they could continue to live as they were before. And then, of course, we could release them. However, if the wild animal in question is a predatory animal, what we're effectively doing is we're bringing them into our community and then we are helping them get back to a position where they can go out and kill. So I think there's a very real sense that if we do that and then we release these animals and they go on to kill, the blood of the animals that they kill is metaphorically on our hands, That might sound like a strange thing to say, but I think that there's a kind of continuum of moral responsibility we can talk about here. So non-human animals, I believe, are not moral agents. That is, they don't know right from wrong. And that means that they can't violate rights. So for comparison, a baby is not a moral agent. And so even though I have a right not to be punched in the face, if I pick up a baby and she punches me in the face, it would be a very strange thing for me to say, oh, that baby has violated my rights. Same for a dog, okay? If I pick up a dog and the dog bites me, I wouldn't say that the dog has violated my rights. However, if someone else has a dog and they set the dog on me and the dog bites me, I might quite plausibly and I think quite correctly say, my rights have been violated here, but not by the dog, by the person who set the dog upon me. And it would be a very strange thing for the person who released the dog to then say, oh, hold on, dogs aren't moral agents and it's the dog who bit you, not me, therefore your rights haven't been violated, because it seems like this person is responsible for the dog's actions to a degree. Perhaps they aren't as responsible as if they bit me themselves. Perhaps they aren't as responsible if, as if they'd punched me themselves, but they are responsible to a degree. And I think that degree is important, right? Because the degree of moral responsibility can lend itself to justifying the claim that a certain harm is actually a rights violation. So when we come to the question of rehabilitated wild animals, I think we can plausibly say that the rehabilitators are responsible for the harms that are committed by the animals after the animals have been released to a degree. After all, these people haven't just kind of helped the animal one-off. They've taken the animal into their community. They've given the animal a great deal of assistance. They have actively tried to get the animal back to a position where they can hunt. Indeed, it seems like it's their intention for the animal to go on to hunt. So there's a whole range of different factors different relationship different entanglements that these individuals at the wildlife rehabilitation center have with the animal in question that i think amount to enough for them to be somewhat responsible for the harms that the animals go on to commit and therefore somewhat responsible for the violation of the rights of those animals who this released animal goes to prey upon
1: okay right um yeah it's 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 complicated i guess um um there's um at least a, i guess a few um conditions related to judging whether or not rehabilitators are responsible for the harms caused by released predators um i mean i guess what, what, one of yeah you you mentioned that one factor is um the fact that presumably predators are not moral agents um and this matters because if they were moral agents, they could they could choose otherwise, choose not to hunt, and um, therefore we we would be less inclined to blame blame the rehabilitators, more inclined to blame the predators themselves um, when they're released. And, and that, but that's just one factor. There's also the fact that um, rehabilitators are making a causal contribution by um, rehabilitating the predator and then and then releasing them, um, a causal contribution to the harms caused by the predator. And um, and then finally, also there's. Um, uh, uh, questions about uh, i guess men's rea sort of um, the mental state of the rehabilitators um I, I my initial thought was well the relevant category of mental state is, is something like foreseeability the um the rehabilitators could reasonably foresee that the um, predators will go out and hunt um but but it's interesting that you said that you think actually intentionality might be involved in there the rehabilitators intend for the predators to go out and hunt and that's a, that's a that's an even higher bar of kind of mens rea related responsibility.
2: I think that's right. I get the idea of intentionality in this case by spending a bit of time disentangling different notions of rehabilitation. And one of those notions is a kind of rehabilitation to proper functioning. And I'm quite sceptical about function language, incidentally, but I do think that wildlife rehabilitation centres do have this goal to put things back where they belong, where they should be. That is, put ecosystems back where they should be, put animals back where they should be, and so on and so forth. And I think that that suggests intentionality on their part to, intentionality for the animal to go on and hunt, intentionality for the animal to behave in a certain kind of way. So they don't just foresee that this animal will go on to hunt. They actively try to make it the case that the animal can go on to hunt.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um So uh, one thing I'm I'm curious about here, and I I guess it has implications for um, the plausibility of the the argument you've made. Um, I'm I'm curious about whether you uh, think this argument you've made has has broader implications for uh, our relationship with with predators' behavior. Um, So it, it seems to me that um, your argument suggests that at least some forms of rewilding are impermissible, um, such as reintroducing apex predators to increase biodiversity. Um, but, and I'm, I'm wondering if it also suggests that we're responsible for other harms done by predators in various cases. Um, so for example, um, sometimes collective human behavior ends up causing a predator, a predator population to either increase in size or to be displaced, and that causally affects the harms done by the predators. Another sort of case that might be of interest and which you also discuss later in the book is supplemental feeding. Um, So cases where um, a a set of predators are at risk of dying from starvation. And so we go in and and feed them to prevent them from starving, which presumably prolongs their life and also prolongs their ability to keep hunting. I'm wondering what you think about the um, boundaries of your argument. Do you think that it extends to various other cases too, or do you think it it really is quite limited to... um, The the release of predators from rehabilitation centres?
2: I think that's absolutely the right question to ask. I do think that it extends beyond the boundaries of wildlife rehabilitation centres, but I think that this goes back to the messiness and the, the fact that these questions are very complicated. I think we're going to have to look at this on a case by case basis. Now, Like we were just saying, there's a whole range of different factors that seem to be relevant when it comes to the Wildlife Rehabilitation Centre, and some of those may apply in other cases and some of them may not. Now, I don't offer a complete theory of moral responsibility in this book. What I do instead is I suggest a range of things that a complete theory of moral responsibility I think would contain or would allow for. And so, for example, I don't think that mere causal responsibility is going to be enough in many cases to justify the harm being attributed to human agents. Um, That was a little bit opaque. But, for example, there's all kinds of things I do every day that lead to one animal being killed rather than another by a predator. For example, You know, I mentioned before Sparrowhawks, if there's a Sparrowhawk in my garden and I open the door of my conservatory because I hope to get a photo of her or something, and the Sparrowhawk sees this opening door and flies away, the fact that she has flown away at that time presumably means that a different animal is going to be killed by her next than would be the case had she stayed in the garden for a little bit longer, right? So there's a very real sense in which I'm causally responsible for that death, but it doesn't seem to me that I'm morally responsible for that death, at least in that particular case, because there's going to be more that's at stake. Alternatively, maybe if I'm morally responsible for that death, I'm only morally responsible to a very small degree. This goes back to this idea of degrees of moral responsibility. And maybe, maybe being responsible only to a very small degree is not sufficient to say that there's an injustice taking place. I leave that as an open question. But as to the particular kinds of examples that you talk about, introducing predators or supplemental feeding supporting predators, yeah, I think these are the kinds of cases that we really need to think seriously about. Because I do think that there might be real issues here that have been overlooked to a certain extent, at least if I'm right about these these stories about moral responsibility for harm, kind of indirect moral responsibility. That is, humans having moral responsibility for um, non-human animals killing each other. And I'm worried about that, in all honesty. And I do think that often we collectively are inclined to mess with wild animals and mess with wild animal ecosystems and get involved in ways that we perhaps shouldn't. And I think we need to be a little bit more thoughtful when we're getting involved and a little bit more open to the suggestion that if we get involved, we might have to do an awful lot of work before or afterwards, because then we're going to be responsible for some of the things that come about as a result of our involvement. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that, that sounds right to me. Um, OK, so uh, you, you discuss beneficence in a number of places throughout your book, um, the, the value of beneficence. And, um, and and though you don't reject the idea that we sometimes owe duties of beneficence, uh, you're also pretty reluctant to, in, to endorse that idea. Um, can you explain your reluctance to us?
2: Yes, I think that's a great question. So I understand beneficence as a kind of moral duty. It's not about rights. So a duty of beneficence would say we sometimes individually have a duty to help certain animals or animals generally suffering. We have a duty to help suffering animals, to alleviate suffering of animals. And I think that I'm sympathetic to that idea. It might sound very strange. Why would an animal rights theorist not be, of course, 100% on board with this? But I think one of the reasons I'm reluctant is because that seems to suggest that we have individual moral duties to help an awful lot of wild animals, because there's an awful lot of suffering in nature. And that has some rather surprising, rather counterintuitive Results, And I don't need to tell you that because, of course, you wrote one of the, well, in fact, the first book on the ethics of wild animal suffering. So you understand the, the challenges that arise here. So I'm reluctant to endorse the claim that we should be intervening in nature to protect animals. Indeed, I've just said we we need to be very careful about messing in nature lest we become responsible for certain kinds of harms which is, I think, a more foundational issue. It's an issue of justice rather than an issue of mere morality like beneficence. And I think one of the reasons, a slightly separate reason that I'm worried about endorsing an idea of beneficence, other than the very strange, very far-reaching conclusions, is that I think, we should be focusing upon issues of justice and issues of rights. And I think that there's a certain kind of person who puzzles me slightly, which is someone who is very, very concerned about helping animals, but isn't particularly concerned about not harming animals. Okay. So an extreme example of someone like this might be someone who volunteers at an animal sanctuary yet continues to eat meat. I find that quite strange. While, of course, I think it is good to help animals, you know, we can we can talk about other, other values that might be impacted by our helping of animals, but for example, donating money to effective uh, charities that help animals, volunteering our time to help animals in need in like sanctuaries or, or similar. I think more important is that we stop harming animals, right? That we go vegan that we take steps to limit our impact, our negative impact on wild animals, whether that's through our own diet, our own actions, our own feeding practices, um, our own practices of keeping companions, right? If we have particularly predatory companions who we allow to roam freely, they're going to do a lot of harm to wild animals. So I think that this has to be our priority. And I think that when there's a conflict between a duty of beneficence and a duty of justice, the duty of justice overwhelmingly has to win out. Mm -hmm.
1: Okay, yeah. Uh, It it sounds to me like your your worry about beneficence there is um, kind of a worry about the relationship between beneficence and consequentialism, or or beneficence and utilitarianism. Um, Consequentialists are, at least at at the level of theory, uh, willing to treat harms as um morally comparable or morally analogous to benefits and as a result harms can be traded off against benefits in a um uh, a way where they're weighted equally so like one unit of harm has no more it has a a negative moral significance that is equivalent to the positive moral significance that one unit of benefit has Um, and so and thinking about harms that way arguably leads to um, a kind of dismissive attitude toward toward harms you someone who, who's a very thoroughgoing consequentialist at, at least at the level of theory um, might end up adopt end up maybe incidentally adopting the attitude that um, they can just offset their harms with some beneficent behavior and it's all good or something like that
2: I think that's absolutely right mm-hmm. and I'm I've got a lot of respect for consequentialism as a tradition of moral theory. And of course, it's a tradition that has been very, very important in bringing animals into the fold of moral theory and the fold of political theory, indeed. However, I resist consequentialism, and I certainly do recognise this strong distinction between harms and benefits. I certainly do recognise, for example, a strong distinction between causing harm and allowing harm to happen right? The doing versus allowing distinction. So I think that consequentialists reading my work will often see clear points of departure from their approach. And I welcome that kind of thing. You know, I'm not trying to, it's not my purpose in this book to convert consequentialists to non-consequentialist theories, but it is my, it is my aim. What I am attempting to do is to try and rigorously work out the consequences of a non-consequentialist framework, which sometimes leads us in some quite surprising directions but other times puts up a wall between the kind of consequentialist conclusions that could be reached and the, the conclusions that i do reach mm-hmm. okay
1: well um so it's you're even though you're not a consequentialist and and often it's consequentialists who who talk the most about this uh, you you do end up discussing in your seventh chapter the problem of of wild animal suffering um and uh and, and you take it seriously so I was hoping you could explain, what, but not everyone knows what the problem is. So can you can you please explain what the problem of wild animal suffering is and uh, and what you think the right way to respond to it is?
2: I think this is a problem that we absolutely have to take seriously. And I think it's a shame that sometimes animal ethicists have been ready to dismiss this issue. So in a sentence, the problem of wild animal suffering is the fact that when we look at the way that animals live in nature, we might imagine there's lots of big happy mammals roaming the savanna, or big happy birds flying over the mountains, or you know, happy reptiles chilling out in a tree. But in reality, the overwhelming majority of wild animals are animals who live short lives, or at least we can argue that convincingly. I think that the overwhelming majority of wild animals are animals who live short lives, um, without much happiness, with a good deal of suffering, and then have nasty brutal deaths whether that's starvation or exposure whether that is predation whether that is lingering disease or injury that finishes them off slowly okay so our vision of nature and the reality of nature as from the animal's own point of view is potentially quite different if we're concerned about animal suffering wild animal suffering is going to be high up on our list of things to remedy Now, what is my solution to this? (laughs) I don't have a solution. I'm not proposing a kind of grand theory of what our relationship to wild animal suffering should be. In this book, instead, I'm just identifying some considerations that I think are there. And it very much echoes what we were just talking about, about this relationship between justice and beneficence. I am not prepared to endorse the idea that animals have a positive right to assistance. We could posit that, but that's not something I'm going to posit. If we do want to say that animals have a positive right to assistance, that seems to suggest that our states, our political communities have an obligation to be doing what they can to help all these wild animals in nature who are facing suffering. And we could reach that conclusion. We could endorse that. And there are people who push in that direction. Alistair Cochrane is a good example. He's who I worked with at Sheffield. However, I think that's a rather bold conclusion, to put it mildly. And I think that kind of necessarily, if we take that view, wild animal suffering has to come close to the top of the political agenda because of the sheer level of suffering involved here. And that leads to some quite strange conclusions. Now, again, that might be the right answer, but it's not the answer I take. Okay, Precisely because the ethical framework I endorse says... Sure, negative rights are universal for sentient animals. We can't kill any sentient animal, whether they are our dog or, you know, an animal who is deep in the jungle and has never encountered a human. But I think positive duties, positive rights are a matter of the relationship we have with them. And the particular relationships we have with wild animals on the face of it are not the kinds of relationships that would ground said rights, said duties, said responsibilities. Now, in the final chapter, I raised two difficult considerations. And I should say, I've said this before, but sometimes I think I am a very conservative advocate of intervention to protect wild animals. Other times I think I'm a very sympathetic critic. Okay, So I'd be interested to see how people respond to this final chapter, to see whether they think I'm an advocate of intervening in nature, but a very conservative one, or whether they think I'm a critic, but a very sympathetic one. Anyways, the two considerations that I raise are this. First of all, if we imagine that we have a duty of beneficence to aid wild animals, this cannot mean that we are allowed to ignore the negative rights that these wild animals have. So to use an extreme example that I hope will be illustrative, if we have a duty of beneficence to help gazelles, that doesn't mean we can violate the negative rights of lions by shooting them. So we need to be very clear and very careful about what kinds of interventions we actually favour. Now, of course, most advocates of intervening to prevent wild animal suffering are not advocating shooting lions. Some, I think, maybe are pushing in that direction. But I think many of them are making suggestions that might push up against or rub up against rights that animals have to control over their territories. This is this might be framed as a sovereignty right, to use Donaldson and Kimlicker's language. It might be framed as a property right, to use language that a number of people like uh, John Hadley have used. So if wild animals have these kind of territorial rights, that seriously limits the kind of intervention that we might permissibly make, even if we have a duty of beneficence to help alleviate wild animal suffering. So that's the first set of considerations. The second set of considerations, in some ways, is the slightly more worrying one for my own framework, and that is the fact that although on the face of it we don't have any morally salient relationships with wild animals for the most part, when push comes to show we really might. And that's because wild animals are seriously impacted by our activities. And the example I use is anthropogenic climate change. Anthropogenic climate change is creating a horrible situation for many, many wild animals. Really stark examples are provided by those animals who live on the islands, who are quote-unquote, which are quote-unquote sinking, right? Rising sea levels, or there's at least some data to suggest that rising sea levels might lead to particular islands vanishing under the waves. And the animals who live there are going to die quite simply, unless they happen to be aquatic animals already, or unless they are able to escape to some other island. These are a really stark example of the animals who are directly impacted by anthropogenic climate change. And it seems like we are morally responsible for the harms that are being caused here, because we know collectively that anthropogenic climate change is happening, and collectively we are not doing enough to combat it. So it seems like collectively, and of course, there's difficult questions about collective responsibility versus individual responsibility here that I'm rushing over to get to my conclusion. But collectively, we are responsible for these harms and we are morally responsible for these harms, and therefore we are potentially morally responsible to a degree, to quite a high degree, for the violation of these animals' rights. And that suggests that we should be doing a lot to help these animals, even if. They are paradigm wild animals. They're wild animals who have never encountered a human. So actually, and this is a kind of scary note to finish on in the book, my framework, which initially started out as relational, suggesting that we, we don't need to rush into nature to protect wild animals, suggest that actually many wild animals might be owed a great deal, even if we don't posit positive rights on their part to assist them.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I see. Um <laughs> Yeah, I guess in in, in your book and with the framework you're using, uh, when thinking about wild animal suffering, it's going to be important to emphasize the distinction between anthropogenic harms to wild animals and natrogenic harms to wild animals, and also to figure out um, how to go about intelligently distinguishing between the two. Because, yeah, as you n- mentioned, it's becoming harder and harder to tell the difference between anthropogenic harms and natrogenic harms. But, but maybe there's a book project or an article project there about... Um, making an intelligent distinction between the two and um, probably questions of of moral responsibility will will play a big role in determining um, maybe not which harms are anthropogenic exactly, but which anthropogenic harms are really important for, for us morally.
2: I think that's exactly right. And so you've identified that there's actually a few different distinctions going on here, and we need to keep them all in mind. And this is yet another example of just how tricky it is to run this kind of relational framework correctly but again i think it's it's worth engaging with these challenges and it's worth trying to piece together the kind of obligations we have because i do think something like a relational rights-based approach is actually the kind of approach we should be taking Mm -hmm.
1: okay well great josh this is it's been great talking to you and uh uh, I think it's really true that I, I have taken up a lot of your time. Uh, we've, we've managed to have a long conversation here. I, I'd like to thank you again for uh, joining us to talk about your book, Just Fodder: The Ethics of Feeding Animals. Uh, your, to remind everyone, your book was published earlier this year by McGill-Queens University Press. The only other question I have for you is whether you're currently working on any projects, and if so, what are they?
2: Yeah, thanks so much. And it's been great to talk to you as well. It's really nice to have the opportunity to piece together some of these ideas with someone who has read the book and someone who has some really quite probing questions for me. So in terms of other projects that I'm working on, I've got a few things in in the pipeline. So I mentioned earlier that I have a book forthcoming with Oxford University Press called Food, Justice and Animals, Feeding the World Respectfully. Now, this is about human food systems and to a lesser extent, human diets, but it's mostly about food systems. And the kind of thing I was talking about with in vitro meat and cellular agriculture earlier, that's a big part of this project. Basically, I'm asking, if animals have rights, what does the future of food look like? And my answer is, surprisingly, it might not be a vegan food system that we should instantiate, that we should support, that we should favour. We may be able to have our cow and eat her too. So that's that book project. That's hopefully coming out kind of early next year, early 2023. My, I've just recently started another book project, which is about animals in the thought of the political philosopher Robert Nozick. Um, and he's someone who Defends a right libertarian political theory, so he's not that popular among a lot of animal advocates who are not particularly sympathetic to right libertarianism, but he was himself a vegetarian and he wrote a lot of interesting things about animals. So I'm trying to piece those together and work out if he had a consistent position on animals and if he did, whether it's one that we should be sympathetic to or critical of. And then finally, among other smaller projects, but a kind of longer term project, is about animals and the ethics of war. So I published one paper with my colleague Sarah Van Goosen from the University of York about this in social theory and practice, and we're working on a few other papers. Basically, we're interested in exploring whether just war theory, which is an ethical theory or a political theory about when it is justified to use violence and to engage in warfare and what kinds of rules dictate how we can behave in warfare, whether it's profitable to put just war theory and animal ethics in conversation. Can we include animals in the ethics of war? Can we make war a little bit more animal friendly? And that might sound like a strange project, but I think it's a project that's really worth doing Um, insofar as wars do happen and insofar as wars are some people think, sometimes justified, I think we need to think seriously about where animals fit into the conversation there. So right now, that's a kind of series of articles, but in the medium term, in the next few years, I'd really like to write that up into a book project.
1: Okay. Yeah, those sound like great projects. Um, I'm, I'm, I guess, particularly excited about the the Nozick project. Um, and and uh, my excitement is from a kind of adv- advocacy perspective, I guess. Um, I think I think you and I, Agree that although maybe there's a contingent relationship between animal rights and veganism and you know the political left, um, it's really just kind of a contingent relationship that has something to do with maybe culture or or something like that, and nothing really to do with um, the pol- uh, pol- differences of political morals between people on the political right and people on the political left. It it seems to me that people on the political right could very easily um, endorse veganism and animal rights. Um, and not, not, none of their, or at least maybe not very many of their values would would conflict with that. Um, and it, it, maybe this Nozick project has prospects for making that clearer or something.
2: Exactly. That's one of the key motivations. So I'm not a libertarian. I consider myself a liberal. So some people would put me on the political right for being a liberal. Some people would think of me as being on the political left for being a liberal. But nonetheless, I think that It's a shame that we associate animal rights so strongly with the left when, as you quite rightly say, there's no intellectual reason that we couldn't have right wing approaches to animal ethics, animal rights, or animal friendly politics or animal friendly ethics. So I think that there's room for a lot of different considerations about animals in different kinds of normative frameworks. So my motivation isn't so much to suggest that animal ethicists should all become libertarians. Maybe it is to suggest that libertarians should all become animal ethicists, but it is to say, look, there's a lot of different ways we can do animal ethics. And I think there's value in having these very different kinds of approaches. So like I said before, I'm not a utilitarian, but I definitely welcome utilitarian animal ethics. I'm not a libertarian, but I'd really like to see the foundation or the expansion of libertarian animal ethics.
1: Okay. Yeah. That, that sounds great, Josh. Um, well, th- thanks for joining us. It's been great talking to you and uh, I wish you all the best with your projects.
2: Yeah. Thanks so much. Great to talk to you too.